Well, let's take our Bibles again and return to the Gospel of Luke this morning, the Gospel of Luke chapter 8. We'll be reading from verse 1 through verse 15 this morning. Soon afterwards, he began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. When a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good ground and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. His disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and, and, and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Father, as we open your word this morning, we want to hear what you have to say to us, to us personally. Father, it is very easy to hear your word proclaimed and think of other people who need to hear it. But Father, we personally always need to hear it for ourselves. And so we pray, Father, that your spirit would take your word and apply it to each one. Do so, Father, for our good today and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. 
So as we come into chapter 8 of Luke, the first phrase you'll see there in verse 1 is soon afterwards. Well, obviously, that's referring back to what we saw last week in chapter 7. Jesus had a dinner at the house of a Pharisee named Simon. Soon after that, Jesus goes on a preaching tour. And as he does, he is obviously seeking to fulfill his mission to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the lost sinners of Israel. This is, in fact, what we have seen Jesus speak of elsewhere in Luke and the other gospels, in which he says that he came to preach. You remember, there are instances in which Jesus is performing his miracles. Great crowds are gathering. Thousands are coming to, to hear him and to see him. Of course, Jesus knows their hearts. He knows that primarily they're there to see more miracles. Or in the case of John 6, they're there to get another free meal after Jesus fed the 5,000. So Jesus knows what's going on, and on several occasions, Jesus goes off away from the crowds by himself, just him and God. And on one occasion, at least, it's repeated in several of the Gospels, but it may be the same instance, the disciples go off to find him because they want him to come back and do his thing again. They come to find him as Jesus goes off by himself and says, Lord, we found the key to successful ministry. Just keep doing your miracles. Look at all the people that we're gathering. This, this is success. And Jesus responds to them by saying, mm, no. We're going to go over to those villages over there because they haven't heard about the miracles yet. And I want to preach because that's what I came to do. I came to preach. That was the focal point of Jesus' ministry. And that's what he's going off to do here. He's going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. Now, there were some others who were with him. It's a very, you know, he, it's, it's, it's very typical of Jesus' ministry. He has this entourage, if you will. There are the twelve, but there are also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means. And so the twelve disciples are there, of course, but Luke thought it important uh, for us to know that there were also women close to the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. He describes them as some women who were healed of spirits and uh, of evil spirits and sicknesses. And he mentions three of them by name. Mary, who was called Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna. 
And all of these women had experienced the saving power of Jesus Christ. Mary Magdalene had been possessed by seven demons, we're told. Many people have speculated about Mary's past, and she has often been accused of sexual immorality. Scripture says nothing about that. Scripture never identifies Mary as a harlot. All we know is that she was delivered by Jesus from her demons. He also delivered Joanna, the wife of Chusa, and she had connections at the royal palace. And then there was Susanna. We don't know anything more about her. Scripture doesn't tell us a great deal about these women any more than it does uh, tell us a great deal about many of the disciples. Some disciples we don't know anything about. We know their names. That's about it. And they were part of the twelve. Well, this simply tells us that Jesus had healed these women. The miracles that Jesus performed for these women were only the beginning of his work in their lives. He also invited them to learn from him, because as we just said a moment ago, this is what Jesus primarily came for. Jesus didn't come for the purpose of performing miracles. Miracles were a part of his primary mission, which was to preach. They were there to confirm who he was and what he proclaimed. Same is true in the book of Acts, when you have the apostles performing miracles. Miracles aren't just done for their own sake. They are there in order to confirm the message. And so Jesus heals these women, but he does so much more than that. He wants them to learn. And that, at this time in history, in this place, was an incredible thing. Because women didn't learn. In those days, rabbis generally did not teach women. Theology was for manly men. And Jesus turns that around. Jesus ignores tradition. Jesus ignores the way we've always done it. And he says, no, the truth that I am proclaiming is for everybody. It's for everybody. It's not just for men, it's for women too. It's not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles. It's not just for Pharisees, it's for prostitutes. That's Christianity. That's the gospel. It is for everyone. It is not something that the church keeps to itself. It's not something that is hidden. There are no secrets. When you hear somebody talking about the, you know, the key to this and the key to that and these secrets they've discovered from the Bible. Run. There are no secrets in the Bible. That's why it's written down. So everybody can read it. That's why it's published. That's why we send the word of God all over the world. Because we want everybody to know. There is no higher knowledge. There is no secret knowledge. Jesus wanted to do more for these women than forgive their sins. He wanted to disciple their minds. 
is another issue that now and then the church has faced, where you have parts of the church that think the use of the intellect is somehow suspect. Our minds are being transformed, we're told by Paul, if we are in Christ. We are to use our minds. And Jesus wants these women to use their minds. And so to that end, he instructs them in the word. And these women, in turn, support Jesus in his public ministry. This shows that there's more than one way for a woman, specifically here, to show her love for Christ. We saw one of those ways last week. The wicked city woman comes into Jesus and she weeps onto his feet. And she washes his feet with her tears and her hair and then anoints his feet with oil. That's one way of serving Jesus. But there is also a place for serving Jesus in more practical ways. And we see one of those here. And what we're told is that these women, out of their private means, were financially supporting Jesus. Now, you say something like that today, right? and flags go up, because we are so used to hearing about corruption about religious leaders taking advantage of their followers. And we need to set that aside because that's not what's going on here. Jesus is receiving the support of these women, and it is not any kind of corruption. There's nothing underhanded going on here. This is a good thing. And this is why when we are preaching through the word of God in this place and we come to those passages that deal with the financial support of the kingdom, we do not shy away from declaring to God's people that it is our responsibility to use the financial resources God has given to us in that support. That God calls us in obedience to give. That's not something we're embarrassed about because it's something God commands. We're also not embarrassed by it because we're open with what we do with the resources that God's people give. And so every few months, we're back here after a service, and we have a members meeting, and we have a budget put in front of us. And we see, you know, it's broken down, line by line by line, and we know where those monies go. So there's no reason to be embarrassed about it or ashamed of it. And yet, one of the other things that I hope you have noticed, if you've been around Red Mills for any length of time, is that we don't talk about money a lot. We talk about it when we come to a passage in the scripture that deals with it. But it's not a focus 
We're not constantly thinking about it. This church was founded in 1832. And from that day to this, God has always provided our needs. And he has always done it through his people. So you will not find us going out to the world and asking for their money. We don't have bake sales and plant sales. We don't have car washes in the parking lot. Because God has not called upon the world to provide for his work. He's called upon his people to provide for his work. And in response to the way that God has blessed us, we do that generously with open hands. And that's what these ladies were doing. They followed Jesus. They received his ministry to them, both in their healing, in their salvation, and in his teaching. And when that happens, the inevitable response is for someone to ask, what can I do in return? How can I respond to this amazing blessing that has been given to me? And one of the ways is to kneel at Jesus' feet and wash them with your tears and your hair and to anoint his feet with oil. And another way is to to give of your financial resources. And we could stand here today, okay, you're sitting, I'm standing, and we could list a whole list of other ways that we respond to the blessings of God. These women knew that because of the resources God had granted them, they were able to help in that way, but that's not the only way. God calls us to respond in loving service in all kinds of different ways and if we are truly his and we have been those who have received the blessing of God poured out upon us that's what we want to do we're always looking for ways to serve him knowing this, this isn't like I'm not paying God back right for what he's done I can't there's nothing I can do to repay God for what he has done for me but boy That's how I love him. I love him by serving him. That's what these women were doing. And they served him to the very end. Unlike most of his other disciples, they followed the Savior to the cross. You come to the cross at the end of Jesus' earthly life. And who's there? It's women. All the guys, they got out of Dodge. John came back, and he was there. But the women were there all the time. And they became witnesses to the resurrection as they followed Jesus even to his grave. And as far as we know from the scriptural record, not one of them ever denied Jesus. The faithfulness of these worthy women is an example for every disciple of Jesus Christ. As we have the opportunity, 
And according to our gifts, we are called to share God's word, pray for the ministry of those who preach the gospel, and give of our resources to support those who spend their lives in the ministry of the kingdom. And as you follow Jesus, you have that privilege of supporting his work, not only here in this place, but around the world. And that is a great privilege, and it ought to be a great joy. Now, one example of Jesus' teaching to which these women were devoted is found here in the next part of Luke chapter 8. Jesus has been bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. That's what he was preaching and proclaiming. And as he preached, we know Jesus used a lot of parables. He told a lot of stories. And one of them is recorded for us here. Beginning in verse 4, we read that a large, when a large crowd was coming together and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away. Because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, this is the first major parable in Luke's gospel. He's told a couple of smaller ones in the past, like the house built on sand, the story of the two debtors. But this is the longest parable so far in the Gospel of Luke. You're going to find this same parable in Matthew as well. And it's really an important parable. It's a key to understanding all the parables, in fact. Because it is in the context of this parable that Jesus explains why he used parables in his teaching and what they were supposed to accomplish in the lives of those who heard him. This particular parable, of course, is often called the parable of the sower. It's not exactly accurate. It's really the parable of the soils. That's the focal point here. It's a familiar scene in ancient Israel. You have a farmer with a bag of grain slung over his shoulder, and he's rhythmically throwing his seed as he walks, just casting it about. Some of us have done that with grass seed. Hopefully yours has taken. Mine never does. The crowd may have been watching someone sow seed right there, for all we know, right? It's an agricultural society. Maybe it was that time of year, and off in the distance is a farmer sowing his seed. But as we see, the parable is not so much about the sower, as I said, it's about the soil upon which the seed is cast. There are two steps to understanding any parable. First, you need to understand what the parable means, and then you need to understand how that is put into practice. But interpretation always comes first. Since the disciples were new to all this, they come right out after Jesus uh, speaks this parable there in verses 5 through 8, and they begin to question him. 
they begin to ask for an explanation right away. And so in verses 9 and 10, we read that his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest it is in parables that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now, of course, the explanation that Jesus gives for why he teaches in parables is precisely the opposite of what most people think. When most people think about parables, they think, well, you know, Jesus is just telling the story to kind of illustrate his point. He's trying to make things clear. He's trying to help people understand. But Jesus says that the point is actually to prevent people from understanding. The stories are easy enough to follow in and of themselves, but their meaning is much harder to discern. So Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, says to you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But then there are all these other people. To the rest, it is in parables. So Jesus, when he speaks to his disciples, and they're alone, and Jesus is discipling his disciples, he speaks very directly. He just lays it out for them. He tells them all about the kingdom, and he does it in a very clear and direct way. But when he's speaking to the crowds, then he speaks in parables. So that seeing, they may not see. And hearing, they may not understand. You see this in Jesus' use of the word mysteries in regard to the kingdom. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Now, in scripture, mystery is something that God knows and reveals to his people. It's something that no one would know anything about unless God revealed it. But once God has revealed it, now it's a an open secret. As we said before, you know, you can come to the scripture now. Everything's revealed there. Doesn't mean everyone's going to understand it. Certainly doesn't mean everyone's going to receive it. Because those things, understanding and receiving, are works of the Spirit within someone. But it's there. In this case, Jesus told his disciples they have been given the mysteries of the kingdom. It has been granted them to know the mysteries of the kingdom. And then he explains the parable. He gave the disciples the gift of saving knowledge. But Jesus did not give this gift to everyone. Not everyone at this point was in on the secret. Indeed, the very same parable that gave the disciples this knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom also kept some people from knowing it. The reason Jesus taught in parables was so that people would not understand. And by way of explanation, Jesus quotes Isaiah. He goes back to Isaiah chapter 6. You remember what happens in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees this great vision of God. God is on his throne. 
Smoke is filling the temple. You've got angels flying around the throne. And Isaiah sees this because the angels are calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah sees that and then he looks at himself and he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then God asks himself, (laughs) the Trinity is all through that passage, by the way, who will I send? And who will go for us? That's a fascinating passage when you see those pronoun changes. Who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah raises his hand. Here am I. Send me. And then you have this. Go ahead, Isaiah. Go. But let me tell you what's going to happen. When you go and when you preach, they're going to hear, but they're not going to understand. They're going to see, but they're not going to perceive. God is going to keep that from happening. In the context of Isaiah's ministry, people had rebelled against God's word. And as part of his judgment against their sin, God would harden them in their unbelief. According to the mysterious and sovereign will of God, some people are given to understand and some people are not. Understanding the parables requires spiritual discernment, which only comes from the Holy Spirit working in a person's life. So the parables have a twofold purpose. They teach spiritual truth to people who believe in Jesus, and at the same time, they deliberately harden unbelievers in their unbelief. The same parable has different effects on different people, and what makes the difference is the grace of God coming and manifesting itself in the life of an individual. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul, Paul talks about the difference between natural men and spiritual men. That is, unbelievers and believers. The natural man does not accept the things of God. He doesn't. Because he's dead in his sin. And he hates God. So he doesn't accept the things of God. But there's something else that Paul says about this natural man. It's not only a matter of the will, it's also a matter of ability. Not only does he not accept the things of God, but he cannot accept them. He is unable because they are spiritually appraised. Jesus is saying the same thing that Paul says there. And they're both saying the same thing that God said to Isaiah. Another way to say this is that parables discriminate. God uses them to to differentiate between those who are in the kingdom and those who are outside of the kingdom. And at the time Jesus began to teach in parables, huge crowds were following him. People were following him for all kinds of reasons, and he knew what those reasons were. Some were trying to trap him, like the Pharisees. Some just wanted to see a miracle. 
Some wanted a miracle for themselves. But how many people were really there to listen to what Jesus had to say? If you go back and you read through John chapter 6, you see exactly what we're talking about here. Jesus feeds the 5,000. And then he leaves. He goes across to the other end of the sea, other side of the Sea of Galilee. And everybody follows him. And Jesus says, I know why you're here. It's because of the miracles. It's not because of me, personally. It's not because you want to be taught. But then Jesus does go on to teach. And he teaches some pretty difficult things. He teaches about how he himself is the bread of life. He teaches about how he himself is the central focal point of salvation. Apart from him, there's no way. You've got to eat my body and drink my blood. And he specifies right in the passage what he means by that. And he doesn't mean that when we come around the Lord's table, the bread and the, the cup are transformed in any way. Eating his body, drinking his blood, means, he says, believing in him, trusting in him. Jesus also throws a great deal into that message about the sovereignty of God. He says, you know what? No one can come to me unless the Father draws them. You just can't. There's that inability again. You can't do it. It's impossible. But, he says, let me tell you this. All that the Father gives to me, they will come. Because the ones the Father gives to me, he's also going to draw. And, right, Father gives, Father draws, they come, and then I will raise them up on the last day. But not everybody is drawn. Not everybody is given. Not everybody understands. Not everyone has their minds open to the truth. Not everyone is brought from death to life. Not everyone is made a new creature in Christ. And when Jesus uses parables, he does so in order to differentiate. There are those who want me for their own reasons, and there are those who want me for me. Why do you claim to be a follower of Jesus? Is it because of what you think he can give you? Or is it because you love him? We've spoken about this in the context of heaven so often, haven't we? Why do you want to go to heaven? Heaven is going to be a phenomenal place. I want to go there. But what's the most important reason for wanting to go to heaven? you got streets of gold, and you got pearly gates and you've got 
harps, that may not be that attractive to you, depending on who you are. I don't know. You want to spend eternity listening to harp music? But we've got mansions. Right? We've got all kinds of wonderful things in heaven. Would you still want to go there if Jesus wasn't going to be there? Or do you want to go to heaven? Because that's where your Savior is. And that's who you love. Well, we shouldn't be surprised when some people fail to grasp the clear meaning of the Scripture, particularly the parables, because they're understood only by faith. From the beginning, it was Jesus' intention that parables would harden some people in their unbelief, while at the same time they would help other people understand the kingdom. That's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 2.14. Now, having explained the general purpose of the parables, Jesus began to interpret the parable of the soils in verse 11. The parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Now, this doesn't always happen. Sometimes Jesus tells parables, and the gospel writers don't break it down like this. But here, you know, it's just one of those great passages where it makes it very easy for the preacher. You don't have to do a lot of work because Jesus does it all for us and Luke includes it here. So you want to know what the parable of the sowers is all about? Parable of the soils? Here you come, verse 11, the seed is the word of God. Great, we've got that. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. And then one kind of soil after another is opened up for us. The word of God is proclaimed, it is preached, and it goes out into the hearing of everyone indiscriminately. But everyone is different. And so the heart... Of, a different, of, of, of individuals right? may be different in the way that they respond to the message. And that's what Jesus is going to open up here. The core of the parable is the truth that not everyone is equally receptive to the word of God. And in order to show this, Jesus compares different kinds of people to different kinds of soil. Each soil represents a different condition of the heart, a different response to the gospel, a different destiny, ultimately, unless that heart is changed. And sadly, out of four different soils, only one ever bears fruit. The first kind of heart is hard and indifferent. Jesus says in verse 12, those beside the road are those who have heard. That is, those uh, who are to go back into the parable, the seed is cast upon the hardened path beside the road. It has been trampled down, and so seed does not make its way into the soil. It just sits there on top. And the devil comes to take it away like the birds come and eat the seed. He takes away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. This is a common experience for farmers in those days. These footpaths cut right through the fields. Inevitably, some of their seed that they're 
casting around indiscriminately would fall on these hard paths where it would never have a chance to germinate and before long the birds would come or they would be trampled by passerby. The seed would come to nothing. The same thing happens, Jesus says, when the word of God falls on the heart of a hardened sinner. It never penetrates the mind. It never touches the conscience. It never enters the heart. It just seems to go in one ear and out the other. And if you're involved in evangelism, you've seen this. I hate having to say that, by the way, if you're involved in evangelism. Because we all ought to be. But you've seen this. The gospel comes, the gospel is communicated, and there is just a wall that is set up. Hearts are not prepared to receive the gospel. The seed is cast, the devil swoops down like an angry old crow to snatch it away. And that explains why some people can hear the gospel over and over and over again without ever having it make an impression upon them. The problem does not lie in the word itself or in the way it's presented, but in the hearts of the people who hear. This is why on the final day, there are going to be those who come and stand before Christ and say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to say, I never knew you. It's not that they hadn't heard, but hearing, it never penetrated. And they also have someone working against them, an enemy who will do everything in his power to keep them from thinking about God's word. Notice why the devil does this. Verse 12, the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. If he could, Satan would prevent everyone from ever hearing the gospel. Why would he do that? Because God works through the gospel to save his people. We talk about the doctrine of election, predestination, and so forth. We don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that because God is sovereign over salvation, that he does not use means in order to save. He does. God is sovereign over every aspect of salvation. So not only does he choose before the foundation of the world, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, but he has also determined that in order to call those whom he has chosen to himself, he will utilize the proclamation of the gospel. The gospel is proclaimed, and as Paul says in Romans 10, when the gospel is proclaimed, it is the voice of Jesus that is being heard. It is through the preaching of the gospel that his sheep hear his voice and then follow him. Satan would like nothing better than to silence the voice of Jesus in the gospel. Whenever the seed is sown, the devil is at work to try to steal it from the hearer's heart. Now, it's a futile effort. Right? Satan never quite gets the fact that he can't stop God. He's powerless. Right? Right? He's wily coyote. He keeps trying, keeps thinking there's going to be another outcome, and everything keeps blowing up in his face. 
but he keeps trying. And nowhere is Satan more active in doing this than in a church that preaches the gospel. J.C. Ryle wrote this, Nowhere does he labor so hard to stop the progress of that which is good and to prevent men and women from being saved. From him come wandering thoughts and roving imaginations. See if any of this sounds familiar. Listless minds and dull memories, sleepy eyes and fidgety nerves, weary ears and distracted attention. In all these things, Satan has a great hand. People wonder where they come from and marvel how it is that they find sermons so dull and remember them so badly. They forget the parable of the sower. They forget the devil. Don't forget the devil. He wants to take your mind somewhere else. Now, I do what I can. I hope I don't bore you every Sunday. Right? But it doesn't matter who stands in this pulpit. If the word is being proclaimed, that's what you need to be paying attention to. And Satan wants nothing more than to come in here and distract you. Oh, there's a siren again. Right? Oh, they're cutting a tree down outside the window. You know? Or as happens every year, snow. <laughs> Never seen that before. And yet I know because it starts to snow and every head. Ask God to soften the ground of your heart so that you can take in the word and believe it and be saved. Second kind of heart is shallow and superficial. Jesus brings this out in verse 13. Those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. This too was a common difficulty for farmers in Jesus' day, in Jesus' place. In many places they had only a few inches of soil to work with before they reached bedrock. And a plant could grow in such conditions, sometimes quite rapidly, but it would not survive. The soil simply is not deep enough to sustain life. The plant cannot get enough moisture, and so when the hot desert sun comes out, it shrivels and dies, and the same thing happens to people who hear the gospel. There are people who will hear the gospel, it will sound really good to them, they'll be happy about it at first. At first, it seems like the word is giving life, they have some kind of faith, in some sense they believe in Christ, at least for a little while, and they seem to be full of joy, but it doesn't last because they're not rooted Soon trouble comes, and they fall away from the faith. Or to use the proper biblical term, they apostatize. What seemed to be a commitment to Christ turns out not to have been faith at all, but purely emotion. True faith perseveres. 
True faith grows roots deep. And when things get hot, it doesn't wither. But as Peter said, it comes out refined like pure gold. That helps us to see how important it is to be honest about the hardships of the Christian life. When we first come to Christ, we may have so much joy that it's easy to imagine all of our difficulties are over. All of our troubles are gone. But we need to know that that's not the case. That's a lie. In following Christ, we are walking in the footsteps of a suffering Savior. Times of testing are going to come, and if we're not rooted in the gospel of the cross, then shallow, superficial, so-called faith will fail. This also helps us to understand how important it is to pursue true discipleship. Making a so-called decision for Christ can be the first step in a life of faith, but if that is all that ever happens, it quickly becomes apparent that there is no actual faith there at all. According to Jesus, there is a kind of believing that springs up very quickly and enthusiastically, but does not endure because it never takes root in the gospel. Go back again to John chapter 6. Jesus preaches all this really hard stuff. Thousands of people there. And at the end of that sermon, everybody is gone. They all leave. And you know what those people are called in that context? Disciples. They were disciples, but they weren't real disciples. They were disciples in that they came to hear, and they didn't like what they heard, so they took off. And all that was left was Jesus and the twelve, it seems. Again, Ryle understood this. He wrote in the 19th century, It is quite possible to feel great pleasure or deep alarm under the preaching of the gospel, and yet to be utterly destitute of the grace of God. The tears of some hearers of sermons and the extravagant delight of others are no certain marks of conversion. We may be warm admirers of our favorite preachers and yet remain nothing better than stony ground hearers. Nothing should content us but a deep, humbling, self-mortifying work of the Holy Ghost and a heart union with Christ. Happens all the time. People who once seemed very excited about Christianity fall away. An enthusiastic high school student who falls in with a crowd that leads him away. A girl who grew up in Sunday school goes off to college and starts sleeping with her boyfriend. A couple that went to church when they were dating drift away after they get married. A man who said he wants to get serious about spiritual growth who dives into the slime of online pornography. A skeptic who seemed to be convinced about the truth of Jesus ends up hostile to the faith that he once professed. It happens all the time. And we pray that people like this will come back to Christ, and some will, but the sad reality is that some who seem to believe never really did. 
third kind of heart that seems to grow even faster than the others but still never bears any fruit is a heart that is preoccupied and distracted. The seed fell among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. Every gardener has seen this happen. I spent time just yesterday trying to deal with this issue. Good plants never seem to grow as good as weeds. Sometimes weeds take over the whole garden, and if you don't deal with those weeds, the good plants will never produce good fruit. And the same thing can happen spiritually. Jesus mentioned three weeds that choke off spiritual growth. One is the weed of worry. Worry and trouble, the cares of this life become so distracting that we forget to nurture the life of the soul. Our miseries get in the way of the ministry of the word. Jesus goes on to say that Good things in life can be just as distracting as bad things, right? Riches and pleasures. It's not just the distractions of our troubles, but the distraction of our blessings. Taking a vacation, buying a car, remodeling our home. These, all, these things all may be good in and of themselves, but they can easily distract us from the kind of sacrificial obedience that helps us grow in Christ. And you see this throughout the scripture, all kinds of examples of this. Consider Esau, who sold his birthright for a bowl of stew. Demas, saddest verse in all of scripture. Demas, having loved this present world, has left me. Left Paul alone there abandoned in his prison cell because he loved this present world. And the same thing can happen to us. The things we do may not be wrong in themselves, but they don't have to be wrong to get in the way of our spiritual growth. We make time for everything else except developing a deeper relationship with Jesus. I've got all kinds of priorities in my life. Where is Jesus on the list? If we bear any fruit at all, it doesn't mature, as Jesus said. It's of little use to the kingdom. Jesus ends his parable with the last and the best kind of soil. That is a heart that is good and fruitful. The seed is uh, the seed in the good soil. These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. That is, these are the truly converted ones. And they hold it fast and they bear fruit with perseverance. This is the heart that holds on to the word of God reading it regularly, believing what it says about sin and salvation, treasuring it, loving it. Your love for the word is something that is going to progress. This has been my experience. I'm moving in on blah, 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 years old now. I'm going to be 60 soon. I know, right? I don't look it. I've been in Christ since I was 13. And my love for the word increases every year that I live. 
that's what happens, right? If you're struggling with that, you know, I try, Pastor, I hear this so often, Pastor, I try to, 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 to read and I try to study the word and boy, it just doesn't come and it's, sometimes it's so dry. So I, I get that. I get, we all go through that. But you don't give up because your efforts in that respect will pay off. You're going to open the scripture one day and God's going to open his floodgates. And you are going to just sit back in awe at the wonder of his word. That is what happens to God's people. Love his word. Immerse yourself in his word. Hold it fast, and the result will be that you bear fruit with perseverance. That you're able to not only stand when trouble comes and persevere, but to bear fruit in the midst of the trouble. Now, of course, the reality is we don't know what hearts are what. I can't look at you and determine what your heart is like. I can't look into the heart of someone I'm speaking to out on the street and know what kind of heart they have? Which hearts are the well-trodden path? What hearts are rocky soil? Which hearts are cultivating thorns and weeds? Which hearts are good soil that will be receptive to the word? We don't know, so what do we do? We do what the sower did. We just throw that seed everywhere. We take the gospel everywhere to everyone. In one of his sermons on this passage, Spurgeon made this point in the strongest possible terms. He speaks specifically of pastors, but what he says is true of all of us. He says what the minister has to do is go forth in his master's name and scatter precious truth. If he knew where the best soil was to be found, perhaps he might limit himself to that which had been prepared by the plow of conviction. But not knowing men's hearts, it is his business to preach the gospel to every creature, to throw a handful on that hard heart and another handful on that overgrown heart, which is full of cares and riches and pleasures of this world. He has to leave the fate of the seed in the care of the master who gave it to him. For well he understands that he is not responsible for the harvest. He is only responsible for the care, the fidelity, and the integrity with which he scatters the seed, right and left with both hands. We are bound to preach the gospel, whether men will hear or whether, men, or whether they will forbear. Let men's hearts be what they may. I am not loosed from my obligation to sow the seed on the rock as well as in the furrow on the highway, as well as in the plow field. It's not our responsibility to determine the kind of soil onto which we throw the seed. Our responsibility is simply to sow and let God take care of the rest. And so as the parable ends with the good news that as we sow the gospel, some people will believe and there will be good fruit, God is faithful to his word, and in the end, he will reap the harvest. So we are called then, are we not, to examine ourselves. What kind of heart do we possess? 
has that seed taken root deep down? And do we believe that as we scatter the seed, God will take that seed and do with it what he will? Even if we can't see him working. Even if what we see causes us to doubt that anything is going on. I was one of those. When I heard the gospel, I believed it. And the men who shared the gospel with me didn't think I was hearing a thing. And later on, when I came to them to thank them for their faithfulness and to tell them that as a result of their ministry to me, I was planning on going into the ministry, I almost needed to take them up off the floor. (laughs) They were faithful, not because of what they saw but because of what God had commanded. May that be true of us as well. Father, thank you. Thank you for the seed that has come to us. Glorious seed, which brings life. And for those of us in whom it takes root, Father, it bears fruit. We are so, so grateful. Thank you, Father. Bear fruit in us, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.